I had a, a humbling moment this week. I was helping with Sparky Games in Iwana. And for those of you that aren't working in Iwana, Sparks are our little ones. They're, they're kindergarten, not the littlest ones, right? Cubbies are little. <laughs> our Cubbies director is like, wait a minute. <laughs> Sparks are, are some of our littlest ones, kindergarten through second grade. And so some of these kids are just entering kindergarten. And that, that's pretty young to all of a sudden be playing organized games. But hey, we're going to do it and we're going to try it. And I was leading games and it's gone pretty well this year. And, and I had come up with this game where it, it was this relay where the team sits on the circle and the first person gets up and runs around the circle and sits down, right? Not too hard. I, most of you could do that. And then once that person sits down, the next person gets up, runs around the circle and pretty good. And and to mix it up, usually we go the older, the older kids to the younger kids, just for, so the younger kids could see that. Well, now I know that. Uh, because I thought, well, I'm going to mix it up. We're going to start with the younger kids. And so we take the littlest one. <laughs> you, I heard laughter already. Wait a minute. Some of you parents are like, oh. <laughs> and so I, the littlest ones were going to go first, and they were going to stand up and run around the circle and sit down. And I thought, well, this will be fun. I blow the whistle. And as soon as I blow the whistle, what do you think happens? There is just chaos. Kids are running out of the circle. I think they're going for the door. Kids are running across the circle, which makes a lot of sense. It's faster. So why go? One kid thought, I'm going to win, and he went right to the victory pin. And I'm like, no, no. And leaders are chasing them and trying to lead them through. And we got to the older ones, and it was fine. Well, then, then a little later, Drake, one of, one of our young men, was leading one of the games with them, and he was doing a baton relay, and, and he wisely started with the oldest. <laughs> and the oldest lined up, and they ran the circle and handed the baton to the next one. And the next one took the baton and ran the circle, and it smoothly went through the whole team. But what a wonderful illustration, by, by my embarrassment, what a wonderful illustration of, of how the church should work of passing the baton and of the older showing the younger how to do a task. And, and what had happened is I went straight for the younger, and I didn't have the older show them what to do. And, and with the little ones especially, they're watching. And they're watching for what to do. And they're not really listening to my instructions, but they're going to copy what others have done. We come to the end, nearing the end of 1 Timothy. We have one more week. And, and we have the same situation but in a different setting where Paul is teaching his protege, where Paul is teaching his son in the faith, and he's sent Timothy to Ephesus, a tough assignment where there's elders that are teaching falsehood, and Timothy is supposed to confront them. He's supposed to correct the things that are happening in the church. But Paul doesn't just send Timothy and say, you're on your own. As we, we have through, we've seen throughout this book, we see Paul giving instruction. And we come to the end, and Paul now gives Timothy a charge. And it's the older passing the baton to the younger, showing him what to do. This is what's important in ministry. I think about that. Those of you that have been in ministry a long time, that have served in the church a long time, that have taught Sunday school, that have been Awana leaders, and, and served in so many capacities, what would you pass on to the next generation that's just coming into ministry? What's important in ministry? And that's when we come to the passage today, what we see. We see a commissioning of Timothy. Paul saying, this is your charge. This is what you need to remember. And this is a solemn charge. It's, it's a, a sobering charge, something to take seriously. 
And so today we want to go through that charge and realize this isn't just for Timothy. This is for every man of God. This is for every woman of God, for every servant of God. Because we know Paul over and over told Timothy, teach these things. Teach these things to your congregation. In 2 Timothy 2, he's going to say, find other men, teach them, that can teach other men. And so he's, he's presenting a view of discipleship, of passing the baton. And so as we study the text this morning, let's not read it as, oh, this is just for Timothy. But let's read it as, this is for you, this is for me, this is for every servant of God. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning. A sacred commissioning as as we explore and delve into how Paul does this, how he passes the baton. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, under the seats there are are Bibles that you're welcome to pull out and um, open to 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that home and, and have one as we want people to be in God's Word and reading God's Word. But 1 Timothy chapter 6 starting at verse 11. We read, But as for you, O man of God, and we get this introduction right from the start, and yes, we're going to stop right after the first phrase, but as for you, O man of God, look at the title, the, the title that Paul commissions Timothy with. Because this is significant right at the start. We look at that and say, oh, that's nice. He's calling him a man of God. But to Timothy, this would, have, this would have brought up all kinds of other imagery because Timothy was well-versed in Scripture and he was well-versed in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the, the title man of God was used of servants of God or messengers of God. This was a great title. This would be like someone coming to you or I and saying, hey, you're the president of a company. It, it, it has that kind of weight. Flip over, hold, keep your finger in 1 Timothy 6, but flip over to Joshua 14.6 in the Old Testament. Joshua 14.6 in the Old Testament. Let's look at some of the ways this title, Man of God, was used because it gives us insight into how Paul is equipping Timothy. In Joshua 14.6 we read, Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses. It's the next phrase. The man of God. And that's used as a title for Moses. The man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. And so Moses, and we have other, other scripture as well, where Moses is called the man of God. Flip forward just a couple books to 1 Kings 17-18. 1 Kings 17-18. And she said to Elijah, Elijah being the prophet, what have you against me, O man of God? And so the, this title was used for Elijah. So we have Moses, we have Elijah, two of the heroes of the Jewish faith. In Nehemiah 12.24, I'll read this. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, and their brothers who stood opposite them, to praise and to give thanks. This is the commissioning of those that are going to lead them in worship. According to the commandments of David, the man of God. Watch by watch. As If you you trace the man of God through the Old Testament, you'll find it's a title used for Elisha. And it's not just a description, it's a title. It's a title used for Samuel. It's a title used for several other prophets. And so for Paul to come to Timothy and say, but you, O man of God, 
that title is filled with meaning of saying you are a messenger of God in line with Moses, Elijah, Elisha, David, their greatest king. Think about that. Paul is saying you are in line, you're in the legacy of heroes. Of heroes. What does that do for Timothy? It it brings weight to this discussion, but it's Paul empowering Timothy, equipping him, and reminding him of his identity and purpose. His legacy. And so Paul here, just with a title, is saying, I believe in you. You have a responsibility to be a man of God. You are the man of God. See, identity, identity defines our responsibility and purpose. If we as servants of God start to think of ourselves as servants of God, as men of God, as women of God, with that title, with that responsibility, that will change how we approach ministry, won't it? That will change how we approach coming and working coffee card or anything else because now this is my responsibility, my privilege as a man of God, as a woman of God. I also appreciate the the legacy idea that Paul is reminding Timothy he comes in a line of godly men and women. And he stands on their shoulders and people are going to come after Timothy and stand on his shoulders. And that again is a reminder to us that we are, are in line with all of God's work through all of history, through all of the men and women that have stood and served God. That is the legacy we have. And our call is to be the next link in that chain, not the weak link in that chain. To stand and say, I will serve God like Moses, like Elijah, like Paul, like Timothy. And that should make us quiet, a little sober. Wow. Serving God is not a light thing. And that is what Paul is transferring to Timothy. He says, you're a man of God. Not a man of Satan. Not a man of money, which we just talked about in the last section. Not a man of pride, like the false teachers were struggling with, but a man of God. For, for those of us that, that have people under us in ministry, those of us that are a little older, what a great example of how to begin to equip the next generation. Do we come and say, you know what, you guys don't do anything right. You guys aren't, aren't worth, you guys can't work in that ministry, we need to leave it. Or do we come and say, you are a man of God. You are a woman of God. And this comes back to discipleship, which so many are doing. And you are building into the next generation. And so Paul starts with this title full of meaning, O man of God. And then he gives Timothy five commands. Five commands that a servant of God should follow that are part of his sacred commissioning, that are part of our sacred commissioning. So this morning, I just want you to remember five words. Maybe a little bit more of what they mean, but five words. The first is flee. Flee. And you see in in that verse, in verse 11 there, the first command that is given, flee these things. But as for you, O man of God, and that's a contrast to the false teachers that we studied last week, But as for you, you're different, O man of God. Flee these things. And what things is he talking about? All the things in verses 3 through 10 that we talked about. The pride, the empty conceit, the attempts to cause division so that I win, so that I look good, 
the, the pursuit of money, the love of money. He says, flee all of these things. Those are what the false teachers are falling into. Those are harming ministry. And he says, run from sin and anything that will harm ministry. And he's starting with these commands about character because the servant of God is to live differently. When we serve God in the church, when we serve Him in our communities, in our homes, character matters. And so he starts with character and says, flee sin. And and the word for flee is, is a very strong word. It's the idea of run from as fast as you can. Get out of there. The, the, the Greek word fuego or fugo, rather, is where we get fugitive. And if you think of a food, fugitive, can't even say that, right? What's happening with a fugitive? Someone's chasing him and he's running for his life, right? Now, in, in, in our culture, that has a negative connotation because that's a, a, someone that has broken the law and is running from the law. But here, it's the idea of just running from danger. Sprinting from danger. The idea, almost like if you were at the bottom of a dam and we visited Bonneville Dam on our vacation, if we're at the bottom of that dam and a warning comes in that the dam is about to burst, what do you do? You run as fast as you can to high ground, right? Because you're trying to get away from danger. Paul says that, Timothy, is how you should approach evil. That is how you should approach sin. Run from it as you're running from danger. And sometimes I think we, we tolerate sin and we allow sin, not necessarily that we commit sin, but we allow sin around us and we, we use sin for entertainment and we, we allow it because we don't see the danger. We don't see the seriousness of it. And we won't run from things we don't think are dangerous. And Paul is saying this is dangerous. Look back at verses 9 and 10, just about greed. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Listen to the danger that Paul says. Into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Going on in 10, the second half of 10, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Paul is saying this is serious. And I'm challenged by that. Will I flee sin? Will I flee any attempt or in anything that draws me closer to sin? Will, what tempts me? And will I run from that as, as hard as I can? Maybe it's attitudes that I might dwell on during the week and get frustrated and get angry. Am I, am I taking those captive and fleeing from those? Am I removing myself from situations that I know are tempting? Am I watching what I see? What I look at on the computer? How serious are we about sin? And Paul says, run for your life. Run for your life. A couple of examples from Scripture. In Genesis 39, 11 and 12, just a snapshot from Joseph and Potiphar. And if you remember, Joseph was, was working um, in, in Potiphar's household and Potiphar's wife is coming on to Joseph. And this happens repeatedly and he keeps shunning her. And then we get to verses 11 and 12 and and the day has come where she decides this is the day I'm going to get Joseph. It says, but one day when he went into the house to do his work, Joseph, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. 
So she grabs his coat and says, this is the day. Let's go. And look at his response. Listen to his response. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. He didn't stay around. He didn't try to discuss it with her. He didn't try to reason with her. He ran. And Joseph was known as a man of integrity. And we know that this was part of God's plan to use Joseph to save Israel and to continue the line that would eventually lead to Jesus Christ because he was faithful. Paul, the same thing. You see an example in 1 Corinthians 9. And and in Potiphar's case, or in Joseph's case, he's running from sin. With Paul, he's avoiding anything that would harm ministry. And, And to the church at Corinth, he says, you know, we've sown spiritually. Is it too much to ask that we reap material things from you, that we get paid? And and Paul goes on to say, but I didn't take a salary from you. I didn't take your money because I didn't want it to impact ministry. And he had other churches supporting him. And so Paul was willing to flee anything that might harm ministry. It's a challenge. What do we run after? What do we pursue? What's our desires? What are we running from? First command Paul gives Timothy, flee these things. Run from sin. Run from the things that damage ministry. But then the second command in verse 11, but as for you, O O man of God, flee these things. The second command is pursue. Pursue. And Paul is saying you need to pursue godly character. It's one thing to run from something, but it's another thing to run to something. And so many times we can get caught up in our Christian walk, I need to not do this, and I need to not do this, and I need to avoid this. And if we don't replace it with anything, how does that work? It's a disaster. It doesn't work. If I sit here and say, don't think of blue elephants. Don't think of blue elephants. Don't think of blue elephants. John, what are you thinking of? Blue elephants. No, I said not to. You are disobedient. (laughs) Why is he thinking of blue elephants? Because that's the top, that's the focus. And even if our focus is is running from something, that's our focus. When you're riding a bike and and you see a ditch, they tell you, look at where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. Because if you look at the rock you're avoiding or the ditch you're avoiding, you will go in it every time. And so Paul says, run from this, but replace it with this. And if we're to conquer sin in our lives, if we're to conquer things that keep us from having godly character, we need to be pursuing godly character. Flee and pursue. And he gives us these graces and it's to run after goodness as we would run after treasure. It's to cherish it. To chase it. And he gives us six things to chase. To run after. Those are listed in the verse there. Pursue righteousness. And righteousness is the the act of acting uprightly. It's, It's upright conduct. It's before God and before man doing the right thing. So if you think of actions and obedience with righteousness that gives you a flavor of what it's saying, am I doing what's right in my relationships with others? Am I doing what God wants me to to do? This This is where integrity comes in. And character. Proverbs 15, 9 compares the wicked and righteousness and says, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord but he who loves him 
pursues righteousness. So righteousness is contrasted with the way or the actions of the wicked. And it's an observable thing. And Paul tells Timothy, pursue righteousness. Do what's right. Make sure you're obeying God's Word. And the second goes with it as a pair. Also pursue godliness. And when we think of godliness, think of the heart and motivation. So righteousness, the external actions that come from godliness, a right heart and a right motivation. It's a life with deep respect for God, awe for God, and a deep love for God. And so it's a heart that affects our actions. MacArthur used, coined the phrase God-likeness for godliness. I think it's very appropriate. God-likeness. And so it's, it's a love for God, a desire for God and His glory through every thought, through every action, through every reaction, through every word. So Paul says, Timothy, make sure you're doing the right things, but make sure it's out of a love for God. And so many times I watch people be disqualified from ministry because their heart isn't sold out for God. We've said in leadership at Village, the first requirement to be in leadership here at Village is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can teach skills, but we can't overcome a heart that isn't sold out for God. And Paul's reminding Timothy of that. So he has two, two items that deal with character and walk with God, righteousness and godliness. And now he gets to fruit of the, several of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, pursue faith or a trust in God. A faith in God that says, I know that my God is, is sovereign over all things. I know He has all power. I know that every situation I am in, He is handling. That's a trust and a faith in God. Is that important in a leader? Is that important in ministry? Absolutely. That's what enables a leader to take risks for God. To step out for because he knows who God is. We're going to see Paul come back to that in the, in the end of the text. A reliance of God on God and a faithfulness to Him. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. Agape. A love for God, a love for others. That, that affects everything we do. You can be the greatest person in nursery, the greatest person in ministry here at Village, and if it's not out of love for God and love for each other, if we're not showing that, it is empty. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 13. It's empty. And so, do we love God? Do we love others? That's part of Timothy's commission. Man, that must have been hard for Timothy. Going into a church where he didn't know a lot of people, a church in turmoil, a church where he's having to correct. And Paul says, be sure you love them. Be sure you love them. Because they won't hear you if you don't. Fifth thing he says to pursue is steadfastness. Steadfastness, endurance, patience. One author said, a patient stickability. I like the word stickability. I like making up words on Sunday. Stickability is a good one. It's a perseverance that says, I will continue serving God, walking with God, no matter what happens. No matter how tiring it is. No matter how hard it is. In fact, in ministry, 
when, when we are serving God, when we are making a difference for the kingdom, I can almost guarantee that it'll lead to attack. And there will be days that you get up and you're like, I don't want to go minister today. I don't want to go serve today. Because we're serving people that need Jesus. We're serving in, imperfect people that desperately need the grace of God. And it is hard to show the grace of God sometimes unless we are funneling God's grace to them. And so Paul encourages Timothy, stick with it. Stick with it. This is something that I believe every generation needs to teach the next generation. None of us naturally like hard work. None of us naturally like to do difficult things. Man, I'd rather sleep. I'd rather watch baseball next year. I know, some of you are still happy this year. (laughs) I'd rather do those things, but why do we get up? Why do we serve God? Why do we have patient stickability? Because we are serving God Almighty and we are commissioned to this task. Susie and I enjoy a show. I always hesitate to say a show we enjoy, but here goes. (laughs) We enjoy a, a show called Gold Rush about gold mining in Alaska. And this week was the premiere, and we're sitting there watching this Friday night, and, and Susie hadn't heard, known my points of the sermon or the text, and we're watching this group of miners go to the jungle to a new place, a very difficult place, and try to open a mine. And it was fascinating to watch the interaction of the generations, because they get there, and there are no trails, there's no running water, there's snakes, there's spiders, there's scorpions, there's mosquitoes, all those fun things. And, and they're going through the jungle to look for water. And the younger ones were like, that's a spider. I'm done. I'm going home. These are men. And the older ones are saying, no, no, that's just a spider. This is something to overcome. Let's stick with it. We can do this. And, and you see the older ones start to take the younger ones aside and say, are you serious? When it gets just a little tough, you're going to bug out and go home? And Susie commented to me, she said, isn't that what we have to teach the next generation every year? Every time we are bringing people up? Because we don't come by it naturally. Paul, that's what Paul's teaching Timothy. Don't let a silly spider or scorpion or, or huge snake stop you. It doesn't matter. Because who are we serving? We are serving God Almighty, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is no snake bigger than that. No problem bigger than that. So Paul says, be steadfast, Timothy. Stick with it. No matter the circumstances, no matter the pressures, no matter if you feel like getting up, no matter if you feel like going, stick with it. And that's a message for every one of us. Sixth thing he says to pursue is gentleness. Gentleness, which is the idea of power under control, sometimes translated meekness. I like, I like the imagery of a bit in a horse's mouth where that horse is powerful and able to take heavy loads, but that bit is controlling and keeping him in line. And that's what gentleness is. It's power under control. Because we know that Paul has told Timothy, you need to confront, you need to address, but you need to address the problems with gentleness. Firmness, but gentleness. These are strong words. Both the fleeing and the pursuing but both are essential. Because the problem is, is if we don't flee evil and we're chasing righteousness, what does that do? We're running two directions. 
And, and no matter how talented you are, you cannot run two directions at once. I can bring volunteer after volunteer up here to try it. It will never happen. And so we must flee evil and pursue righteousness. Just look through Paul's teaching sometime. Look through Jesus' teaching. See how many times they have this idea of flee and pursue. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Paul says in Titus, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, flee, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Pursue. We're going to see it in 2 Timothy again. So the first two commands Paul gives is flee and pursue, and they must be taken together. We can't just try to live godly lives and hold on and tolerate sin in our lives. It's an impossible combination. Moving on to verse 12, we see Paul's third command to Timothy. Fight. Fight. And the first phrase there, which again begins with a command, an imperative, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. And, and it's a challenge to Timothy, again, back to the perseverance idea which he, we just covered, to keep going, but to remember what you are fighting for. The, the word for fight is the same word that we get agony from, and it's the idea of contending for a prize even if it hurts. And, and Paul used this word sometimes for athletic metaphors like distance running. Some of you run distances. You get to mile 10 and does it hurt a little bit? Absolutely. And you keep going to win the race. This also was used for, for um, warfare, for battle. And the idea was you keep fighting until the battle's over. And I'm challenged by that because so many times we get into thinking of church as a cruise ship or something we come for great fellowship. And it should be fellowship. That's part of our core values. But we are here as a church to fight the spiritual battle for our Lord and Savior, for our Commander-in-Chief. And Paul's reminding Timothy of that. You have a bigger purpose than just hanging out at the church at Ephesus. You are there to fight the good fight or the noble fight of the faith. When he says of the faith, he's referring to to Christendom and the teachings of Christendom and, and the following a life that is, that is after God's heart. And it's a struggle sometimes. And it's a challenge to Timothy to engage the enemy, to engage God's work, to persevere in it. And it's a challenge to us to not be on the sidelines, to not come on Sunday morning and sit here and say, hey, we get to sing some songs, and then Pastor Ron goes on sometimes way too long about God's Word, and, but hey, it's good, we're in God's Word. It, if that's all it is, then this isn't the place for us. Because we are commissioned as officers to engage the enemy, to persevere in God's work which is why I love to see so many people coming to Second Harvest, so many people coming to Project Touch, where we go into our community, serving in Awana, where we have a hundred kids that half of them don't know Jesus. That's engaging the enemy. That's taking seriously why we are here. 
So Paul says to Timothy, fight. Fight the good fight of faith. And it's again a reminder for endurance when the fight is hard. But keep working. The next phrase in verse 12 is another command. And so it's our fourth command, hold or take hold. And we read, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And he says, take hold of eternal life. Live like you have eternal life now, Timothy, because you do. And, and Paul is reminding him that so many times we can think of Christianity as, oh, I have a, I have a reward in the future. I'm going to get eternal life. But as we studied even in the Truth Project this week, eternal life, Jesus says, is life where you know God, where you know Him for all eternity. And as soon as we accept Christ, as soon as we put our trust in Him and repent of our sins, do we know God? Absolutely. Eternal life has started now. That's awesome. That should bring smiles to our faces. And so Paul is reminding Timothy, you have eternal life. Take hold of it. Grasp it. Make it your own. Own it. Because we already have communion. And so it's a reminder that we are called to joy instead of worry. Because we're already part of the kingdom of God. We're called to confidence in ministry instead of fear. Because God is already indwelling us and we already have joyful, beautiful communion with Him. It's a call to focus and purpose instead of feeling lost and insignificant because my citizenship has changed. Not it will change, it has changed. Own it. Be part of the kingdom. Paul refers to his good confession about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Probably a reference to to Timothy's baptism, maybe his ordination, but at baptism, they would have made a confession that I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for my sins and I put my trust in Him. That is the good confession. And Paul's reminding him, you've accepted Christ. You're part of His kingdom. Let's go take the hill. Our commander-in-chief has a job for us. And so knowing we have eternal life now fights discouragement. It keeps us strong. It keeps us going in ministry when we don't see the results because we know through eternal life who wins. We know that God is the victor. And so it can keep us going and encourage us to live life in light of eternity. I was reading something that um, Mehdi Dibaj wrote, a Christian in Iran who was taken into, to, um, he was imprisoned for his faith in 1984. He was there 10 years and they were trying to get him to renounce his commitment to Jesus Christ. And he wrote this. And he starts with this idea of eternal life. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is the Son of God. To know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in Him and all His words and miracles recorded in the Gospel. I have committed my life into His hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve Him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be imprisoned for the honor of His holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. That's a man that has taken hold of eternal life. 
that he's willing to do anything for God now because he knows who his God is and a man that's not afraid to die. Take hold of eternal life. And then in verse 13, we come to the fifth command, the final command that Paul gives Timothy. Guard. Guard or keep. Serve well by remembering the king. Serve well by remembering the king. Verse 13 reads, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus, of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and this fifth one is really the core of the charge. This is where the commissioning is like, okay, I've told you to do these things, but you are now commissioned. And he says, keep the command, probably referring to these commands we've already studied today as, as well as the other things commanded in First Timothy. Keep the command of what God has called you to do unstained and without reproach until the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul here says, guard that command. Keep it. Make sure you follow it. But keep it in a way that is without reproach, unstained, and that that continues until Christ returns. And it's interesting to see how he begins this charge. I charge you, which is a strong statement of command. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, the source of all life, also the, the sustainer of all life. He's with you. There's, there's no greater. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. And so he brings up that our audience for this commissioning is God Almighty and Jesus Christ, his son. And in a commissioning, the audience brings weight, doesn't it? It brings significance. If I give you an instruction, let's say I give Charles an instruction and I have some stranger come and, and witness the instruction. Does that have very much weight? A little bit, but, but because, because of our relationship, but that stranger doesn't add anything. He'd be thinking, are you nuts? Why'd you bring, now, now, if now I'm giving Charles an instruction and God Almighty is there and Jesus Christ is standing there, does that bring weight? Oh man! That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, this is my instructions for you, Timothy. But remember who our audience is. In the presence of God, He is with us. He sustains all life. That's why we can trust Him. And of Christ Jesus, who in His testimony made the good confession. And that's referring to, to John 18. We see it in Matthew and Mark as well. But Pilate said to Jesus, so Pilate has Jesus, and he's interrogating Him, deciding whether or not to crucify Him. Okay, so this is a significant moment. If Pilate says you can go free, he goes free. If Jesus says the wrong thing, he's tortured and killed on the cross. And Pilate says to him, so you are a king? In John 7, 18, 37. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And the wording there, the New American Standard translates, you say correctly that I am a king. Because the, the tone, the implication is, yeah, It's exactly as you've said. I am a king. For Jesus to say that meant certain death. 
And in the face of persecution, in the face of hardship, Jesus said, I am God. And he didn't back down. And he followed through with the plan and the purpose of God. So Paul reminds us who we are commissioned for. And he reminds Timothy with God Almighty who sustains and is with him. And Jesus Christ who was willing to give up everything for our salvation. To motivate Timothy to realize God is with him and there's nothing to fear. But he has to be willing to give all. Verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. A reminder again that He's coming back, that the story has an ending that's already been decided, and it's a call to serve on the winning side. And then finally, Paul ends in verse 15 and 16 with a wonderful doxology bringing Timothy back to who God is. And you've heard me say that a number of times this morning because that's the foundation. Who we serve is our motivation to serve. God's character, His person, is our greatest motivation. And so we come to this doxology in verses 15 and 16, and, and Tozer writes about, as we think about God, he says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it defines how we will respond, how we will act in this life. And just listen to verses 15 and 16, which he will display at the proper time. And that's referring back to the appearing of Jesus Christ, that God has it planned out. He has it timed out. Nothing's going to change that. It refers to his sovereignty. And then we read this about God. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And those phrases, sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, refer to His authority over all. Sovereign means He does what He wants, when He wants, how He wants, because nothing and no one is above Him. King of kings would have referred to earthly authorities at the time to say he has authority over them. Lord of lords comes back to his sovereignty of God. His lordship. And in verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What stirs within you as you read descriptions of God like this? What stirs our hearts? It's the greatness of God, His sovereignty. When we read words like, He he dwells in unapproachable light, it refers to His holiness, to truth, that we can't even compare to. When He alone has immortality, He's the source of immortality. He alone has immortality in and of itself from eternity to eternity. Our immortality and our eternal life is a derived immortality that comes from Him because He is God of all things. Whom no one ever has, who no one has ever seen or can see. I think of Moses in the cleft of the rock and says to God, show me your glory. God says, you can't, I can't. You can't see the fullness of my glory. But I'll cover you and I'll pass by and you can see the tail end or a taste, 
the results of my glory. And even with that, Moses comes down glowing like a radiated person. People are scared of him. Because God's glory has that kind of effect on us. And I read this about God Almighty, and it makes me want to serve Him. It makes me want to go take the hill to fight for Him, because this is our commander-in-chief. That's why Paul shares this with Timothy, and why he shares it with us, to say, remember whose command you are keeping. It's God Almighty. Who has sovereignty, authority, greatness, and transcendence. And the result is honor and dominion. Honor and might. Sometimes Paul will say honor and glory, but in this case he's, he's dealing with God's authority to rule, his, his authority to commission us to a sacred commissioning to follow God, to flee, to pursue, to fight to hold on to and to guard against anything that would disqualify us, remembering that we are serving God. That's the commission that Paul gives Timothy. That's the commission we're challenged with this morning. And I'd like to end our service in a different way this morning because this is a commissioning that that demands a response. Will we follow this? Will we uphold this? Are we going to flee? Are we going to pursue righteousness and fight for the cause of Christ and hold to eternal life because we have it now? Are we going to guard our commands because they are the very commands of God? And what I'd like to do is have all of us stand. Would you stand with me for a moment? And grab your Bibles. Keep your Bibles. We'll put the verses on the screen. But we are standing this morning as a sign of our commitment to following this. Uh, Our commitment to saying, this is a command for me to be a man of God, for me to be a woman of God, for us to be servants of God. And as our commitment, I'd like to just read through the passage in unison. Because this is God's Word. This is powerful. So will you read this with me? But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It is true. The second thing I'd like us to do just as we stand is look around. Look around you. And I'd like us to, to follow Paul's example here where Paul is equipping Timothy and passing the baton. And I'd like you to look around and see someone that you can pray for to uphold this commitment. Yes, I, I, I hope that you pray for yourself to uphold this commitment. 
But will you be a Paul this morning and pray for someone else to hold these five things? And pray for them every day this week. Just pick someone. You can write it in your notes. I have a space in your notes that you can write it down. Because this is, I know it's a little uncomfortable. But this is getting practical with God's Word and saying, are we going to fight the good fight? Am I serious about the commitment I'm standing for? Am I serious enough to spend a little bit of time today, each day praying for someone else in this church family? That starts discipleship. That starts us realizing we're part of a bigger picture of God's work. And I challenge you as we leave today to tell the person you're praying for them. I know, maybe I'm meddling now. Maybe I've gone too far. But for some of you to take a younger person and just put your arm around them or just look them in the eye and say, I'm praying for you that you will be a man of God this week. That you will be a woman of God this week. I guarantee that will change their day and their week. Take a risk this morning. Pray for someone and tell them you're going to pray for them. Let's praise Him. Lord God, our Father, we bring You glory. Glory in all things. And Lord, may, may we act as commissioned ministers